Level Up is a regular podcast that brings you topics to help you perform at work and in life at your very highest level. Your host is Dan Kyoto, an executive coach, corporate trainer, and author. He is president of Impact Training and Executive Coaching. And now, here's Dan. Thanks, Jesse. And hey, thank you for joining me again this month for Level Up. You know, this is a place where you're going to learn something that you did not know. But more importantly, something to help you grow. Today's guest is a 23-year-old master's student at George Washington University in D.C. Born and raised in the Midwest, he went to the University of Missouri. He then went to Russia for a master's at its largest liberal university. After Russia's invasion of Ukraine, he left Russia for Washington. There, he will soon be starting his new professional work in a very niche field of democracy building in Eurasia. Please welcome my special guest, Dan Reynolds. Dan, thank you for taking time before your next chapter in Washington. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. This is great. Hey, tell us about your educational journey thus far before we start talking about what you will do. Tell us about your education. Yeah, it's been definitely a bit of an interesting journey for me. Um, I started out my bachelor's degree knowing that I wanted to do political science. That's what I went to Mizzou for originally. Um, I thought I was going to be only doing that. I thought maybe I'll be president someday. And that's why I was getting that degree, which I learned later is not how it works. Um, and then by a series of accidents and circumstance, I ended up in a Russian language course in my freshman year and fell in love with it. I had the best mentor that one could imagine for an academic and professional career who kind of guided me into deciding that that's really what I wanted to do. So I declared it my second degree. And from there, that became my whole academic trajectory. So I got really into foreign policy. I started doing extracurriculars like Model United Nations. My junior year, I decided that I wanted to go abroad and there seemed like no better place to go than Moscow. Um, unfortunately, my time in Moscow was not as long as I had hoped it had been for my language program. Uh, that happened to be in 2019 and 2020. So the pandemic kind of cut into it a little bit and I had to come home early. Um, but yeah, finishing out my poli-sci and Russian degrees at Mizzou, deciding that was the best time for me there. And then making the huge leap to go from Mizzou to Moscow and do my master's in political analysis and public policy at Moscow's higher school of economics, which is their primary liberal independent university that they have there. Um, they jokingly call it the Harvard of Russia. So I went there, um, met with opposition leaders who happened to also be my professors and just had an amazing time in a very international program getting to meet people from around the world. Um, I didn't finish my degree there, but it was hugely impactful and a big part of my academic career. That's good. Wow, so much there. We're going to peel back the onion and take a look at, at each of those things. I love, though, you talked about something where you were headed in one direction political science, and then you saw something and it changed your mind. So we've talked before in this podcast about synchronicity, those things that just happen, but it sounds like you found something that you really love and someone who could guide you on that. That's great. That's great. Yeah, I did. When did you 
start to think about pursuing a master's in your area of expertise? For me, it wasn't really until I got into my sophomore year and kind of into the swing of things. Um, my freshman year was all really about figuring out what I was going to do. Um, pretty quickly when I started my political science degree, I realized that it was a lot more science and math than it was politics. Um, and that kind of shook up my whole expectations for my career interests. Um, I also have been active for a while in party politics already and realized that maybe that wasn't a career thing for me. Um, and so there was a moment where I just didn't know what I was going to do. Uh, and after I figured out that I enjoyed Russian and made that my second degree, I remember sitting down for a meeting with that mentor uh, in her office. And she just said, you know, one of the most impactful things you could do would be to go to Russia and to study there for the first time. Um, and it was something I hadn't considered doing before, but in doing that um, and going there and kind of committing more and more to doing like that specific part of the world, um, I realized that that was quickly becoming my key passion, the thing that I really wanted to do. Um, and then once I was there, more and more people that I met in Moscow happened to be students at that university. And it kind of just convinced me that, you know, I've run into all of these people. So many people have told me that this is the direction that I should go. And I'm feeling that this is the place that I should go. So why don't I just take the leap and do it? That is great. You know, not every mentor will make you stretch. And that sounds like she really did to tell you to go to that country. Um, that's wonderful. And would you tell us a little bit about what it was like living in Russia? It was different, uh, for sure, um, especially when I first went there the first time, uh, because I remember I got off the plane and I did not have Internet on my phone, so I couldn't text. I couldn't call. I couldn't reach anybody. And I learned very quickly just talking to people in the airport that the two years of Russian I had taken at Mizzou taught me very little in terms of living and like having to have regular conversations just to get basic information. Uh, and if it wasn't for the only person that I knew in the country at the time that I had met in an internet group, I would never have been able to even leave the airport. Um, he saved me just by showing up there by happenstance and took me across the city. Um, and I think that's pretty emblematic of how my whole time there was, which was not really knowing what I was doing, but being absolutely fascinated by everything there and continuously meeting people who surprised me and were wanting to help me in my journey. Um, I, beyond just the things that I found that I loved in the art and the history, the politics, the culture, um, and even the food <laughs> to some extent, uh, I also just kept finding myself in interesting communities. Like I unintentionally fell into the Moscow punk scene. Um, even though I don't even necessarily like punk music, I would hang out with them and go to grab drinks with them or grab coffee, um, or spending time in the Moscow underground gay community and getting to meet people there, enjoying that kind of nightlife. Um, so it was really incredible. It was a lot of growth and just figuring out new things, both about me and about this culture that I really realized, aside from what I'd studied in textbooks, I knew nothing of. You know, you <clears throat> told me that you're an extrovert. And it just, it, it's, when I think about you going to Russia, you get there and you can't communicate because your cell phone doesn't work. I mean, that would scare some people. Um, were there times that you felt a little scared, even though it sounds like you met people that made you feel very comfortable? 
Yeah. Um, I think most people, pretty much anybody, even the most extroverted among us would be a little daunted by the fact that you're somewhere new and you have no helpline. Uh, there were definitely moments, uh, where it felt kind of like I was lost or a little bit overwhelmed. Um, I know the very first time I went to a restaurant with a friend and I had kind of hoped that maybe if I talked to the staff uh, at the register that they would be able to understand my English or my very broken Russian. And they didn't. And they asked me a question and just about my order and I didn't understand them. And I got so nervous that I dropped my drink and spilled it all over the floor and someone had to come out and clean it up. And it was just like, a freak encounter that I didn't know what I was going to do with. And I remember in that moment thinking, I'm never going outside, never going anywhere alone. Uh, I'm not going to talk to other people anymore. Uh, and now, of course, I've gotten past that. And I spend so much of my time there, like going out by myself and going to new places and trying new things. Um, but yeah, early on, it was very much intimidating trying to get used to. Well, and that's proof that even if you have a rough situation, you can't keep an extrovert down. You just can't, you know? Hey, did you find Europe an exciting place to live? I did. Um, exciting enough that I want to go back. So um, just partially because it was such a great experience and partially because I think it's always fun to move somewhere new and to try something new. So that's really a good message, too. There are those people that don't want to travel, don't want to go to a new place. But if I'm not mistaken, even as uh as a child, didn't you travel to Europe or do some travel? Yeah, um, I mean, I think I did because I grew up kind of middle class. And I think for a lot of middle class Americans, I had the standard travel experiences of you take your one trip to Disney World, you take your tourist trips to Mexico. It wasn't until I was 18 that I did something that was finding more places that were off the beaten path. Um, it was kind of a graduation and birthday celebration. I went with uh, my mom and grandma, who's been a guest on your podcast before, uh, to Italy and toward the northern half of the country and went beyond just these are the tourist sites to walking around and exploring Venice and Florence by myself and just running into people and seeing what I could find. Um, and I think that was kind of the first moment where I was like, I am really into this idea going beyond the hotel and beyond the beach and finding places. So. Mm -hmm. And do you think too, this I think is helpful for some of our viewers who don't always step out there, but it sounds like you have no trouble talking to people and um, really getting to know them, right? Yeah, maybe just a little bit. I've been told that before. That's great. That's great. So what was the toughest thing about coming back to the United States? The first time or the second time? <laughs> Let's take the first time. The first time, uh, not knowing what at all was happening. Uh, that was the pandemic. And I remember the Friday before I was told I had to leave. So the Friday before the week I left, um, the American universities had put out notices to all study abroad students that we all had to go home. And so myself and my three American classmates, I remember panicking at that, negotiating for all of us to get um, exemptions so we could stay. And then going in the following Monday morning and being told that the entire country of Russia was effectively shutting down and we were all going to have to leave in five days. Um, and that whole week was just a blur um, and kind of disappointing because I had not been in a position until then 
where I had been faced with kind of a disruption or something that big and unexpected that I couldn't just move over it. I couldn't just continue on doing the thing I wanted to do. I kind of had to change my direction completely. Um, so it was a bit rough, but I got home and of course was able to figure it out. But yeah, that whole first, that whole week of trying to get situated and then coming home was a blur and pretty confusing. And then you went back again? I did. And then I chose to go back again. Um, part of it was I had a to-do list and I wasn't done with it. I, by God, I wanted to finish that. So yeah. That's great. That's great. Now, did some things you learned that you learned in Russia prepare you for what you're about to do now? Yes. Um, especially because I've never been to DC before, which is where I live now and have been for three weeks. Um, and, you know, language barrier not existing aside, uh, it's been this equal kind of feeling of daunting at first because I didn't know anybody I was coming into a completely new place. And I had to figure out how to start building a new life here from scratch. Um, but it helped knowing that I had done it before, arguably twice before going the second time was still challenging and still had hurdles to jump through when I moved to Moscow um, last year. Uh, and so that's made it a little bit easier. I kind of know the basic steps to take. I know the things that I need to buy when I get there, the basic essentials. I know the kinds of places I'm going to want to find to kind of find a comfort zone. And I kind of have an idea of how to network, how to make new friends. So that being the biggest lesson, I think, of getting oriented to where I am now. Very good. That is excellent. This is a perfect time for a break. I am Dan Kyoto, your host. My guest today is Dan Reynolds. And you are watching Level Up. There's much more to learn on the flip side about democracy building in Europe. We'll be right back after this. Here is F45 training. The F stands for functional training, a mix of circuit and hit style workouts geared towards everyday movement. 45 is the total amount of time for sweat dripping and heart pumping fun. With thousands of exercises in our database and an almost infinite amount of combinations, our sessions are always fresh and innovative. Put that all together and F45 training is here to bring you one of the world's most innovative workouts. Now let's take a class. Find your local F45 studio from our locations all around the globe. Once inside, our trainers will be there to greet you and check you in. First, we'll demo each exercise while you watch from the blue track. A warm-up will follow, then it's time to find your station. Want to play-by-play? Track your heart rate with F45 Lionheart. Ready in three, two, one, it's go time. F45 TV will guide you. F45 FM will move you. And our trainers will support you every step of the way. This is team training. This is life-changing. This is F45. We are back and thank you for being with us today. I am Dan Kyoto, Level Up's host. My special guest today is Dan Reynolds. We are learning about life in Russia, Washington, D.C., and democracy building in Europe. And it's all from a dynamic young man who is accomplishing a lot in life. Dan, given your experience in Russia, what's your take on the current situation? It's definitely been something that I think has turned the field that I do, um, which is kind of a niche field of foreign policy in that part of the world in the former communist states of Eurasia. Um, it's turned it on its head. Uh, you know, if you listen to a lot of analysts right now, ever since uh, the war began in late February, it's been a lot of questions of 
what's happening, what's going to happen, what's the future look like? And pretty much every person says it's impossible to predict right now, or we just don't know. Um, it's caused a lot of reevaluation in the field and on the ground, it's completely shaken up like our security perspective that we have of the region. Um, from a practical sense, I think the biggest thing is Putin has managed to find yet another opportunity to flex muscles, to test the West, and more importantly for him, I think, to build up uh, domestic support. It's something I've actually written about on a foreign policy site before. Putin has a history of any time he feels like he's dealt with unrest in the past, which he most likely did as well back in 2020 and 2021 when there were protests in the country. He always tries to pick something foreign policy-wise to distract them with, to rally up nationalism. It's how he started with Chechnya and how he built up his career. He did it in Georgia when he invaded the country in the 2000s. He did it in Syria. And now he's doing it again. And I think despite what some people might be saying, I don't necessarily think that Ukraine is off to a position where they can easily win the war going forward. And it's going to have to be something where we have to rethink our geostrategic policies in the region for the time to come. What, what do Russians think uh, about the current situation? You know, it's hard to decipher at times. Russia lacks a lot of independent polling. They pretty much have only one pure independent source, Levada. Um, but even then, with Russia's recent um, crackdown on the opposition, Levada has had to be careful in the things that they actually ask people, the topics that they try to cover um, without being censored. So from what we know, in the circles that I was in initially, in like the liberal circles at my university that we were discussing earlier, with them, it's obvious frustration. They don't believe the messaging. They know that it's a lie that Putin has been trying to manipulate the population and build up this fascist concept. But beyond that, even just my own friends, parents, their families, um, many of whom live out in Siberia or the Far East or Russia's more rural South, for a lot of them, the only news source that they get is Russian media, state-controlled media. Um, television is still the primary source of information for a lot of older families there. Uh, which was one of the few things that we do know by polling. And so for them, what's been going on for years since before Crimea even of this indoctrination of beliefs about Ukraine slowly building over time, it makes complete sense. And even if they're not necessarily a fan of war, of bloodshed, they feel that it's necessary. So it's become pretty grim with their own viewpoint. Yes, yes. Well, let's move on to another topic. I know you have some thoughts on using disruptions to our advantage. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, you know, we talk about disruptions a lot of times personally. We talked about them earlier, the kinds of things that go on in our own lives. Um, but they definitely exist in the strategic sphere as well. Um, I mean, one of the most prominent things that I think has been discussed lately has been that Putin's initial aim, at least publicly, was to prevent the expansion of NATO. He wanted to prevent Ukraine from being able to join these Western alliances. And in the end, he actually ended up doubling NATO's border with Russia because of Finland and Sweden's accession into the organization. Um, that's one of those things that, you know, back when Trump was president, we were talking about NATO and the EU and US alliances being on life support that 
this was something that we were asking ourselves, do we really need, does America need to make this commitment to Europe? And now we understand that that's completely changed. There's a complete revitalization in the belief of security. Um, I am not necessarily someone who believes that defense needs to be expanded dramatically. I don't necessarily support dramatic increases in defense spending, but I do think it's necessary to adopt a more realist perspective on security policy. And I think that's been the biggest change for the better that's come out of this conflict, that we can better prepare ourselves for the security situation in Europe. Mm -hmm. And you do have to think about that. I know that on a recent cruise, I talked to some people who are in the military and they couldn't give me details on anything, but I basically surmise that they feel just like you do on that, that we do have to have what we need for a situation like that. Yeah, it's, you know, it's a rough topic because on the one hand, I mean, we've had these conversations about the Middle East for a long time about the U.S. presence. Do we really need to be there? Um, what does our involvement need to look like and how do we balance diplomacy with military strategy? Um, so it can be tough sometimes to have to admit that it's necessary to build up these military forces. But I think Russia is really showing us that we have to be prepared for these kinds of aggressors, even if they're doing it for seemingly irrational reasons or they don't have allies on the stage. They still pose a threat. That's right. Let's talk about professional niches. How are we supposed to navigate through those? Yeah, yeah. I mean, what I do is definitely, um, it's pretty unique, you know? Uh, and I think for a lot of people, um, they find themselves in that position in my generation, especially. Uh, you know, my generation um, has really been pushed to go into college, to take the steps to do the things that they want to do to achieve the dreams that they have professionally. Um, and I think the consequence of that has been not just that so many of us go to college, but that once we're there, we really start settling into these topics that not a lot of other people go into and that aren't necessarily the biggest in terms of job security. So for me, for instance, I mean, just as an example of how narrow my topic gets, my bachelor's capstone was on the relationship between electoral institutions and populist actors in the West Balkans since independence. And that was like something I'm very passionate about and I could talk about for ages, but is not necessarily something you can get a job for. Um, so, yeah, navigating that, I think, is a really big deal of trying to balance the passion that you have and the patience and attention that you can give to building the right kind of resume, the right kind of cover letter to advertise yourself for the few jobs that exist. Um, you know, for me, I'm very fortunate in that I've been able to have a lot of unique life experiences between spending a long time in Moscow. Um, I went and met with policy stakeholders on the ground of Kyrgyzstan, uh, talking with them about environmental policy, about state building um, as part of kind of an academic and professional trip. And that lasted for three weeks. I worked for the State Department remotely, working for their consulates in the Russian Far East to discuss local news media. Um, and I think the combination of those things, even though none of those things paid me, none of those things were opportunities necessarily that were initial gateways into the field. Um, and I had to work at the same time in other jobs that were completely unrelated to what I wanted to do. Um, together, you can spin those kinds of things to talk about yourself in a way 
that builds up your image enough that when you go into a job interview for one of the handful of jobs that actually exist in your field, you can really put yourself out there. And that's the main way for it, I think, in this kind of niche environment that a lot of people my age have found ourselves in. That's right. But just going to college and learning how to think and communicate as you can, uh, don't you think that even if you don't end up in what you originally thought you would be doing, you may end up in something that you're very passionate about because you have all those skills that you acquired that still make you very persuasive and effective. Absolutely. Um, I mean, that's exactly what happened to me, right? I went into college thinking I was just going to do party politics and I came out of it being a foreign policy nerd for this one specific part of the world. Um, it really does, college opens up all of these new opportunities to discover new things that you might enjoy. I think the trick is balancing the academic career that you're able to do with the few early professional experiences that you can really find and trying to find the middle ground between the two. That's right. That's right. You're a very persuasive person, you know, along with being a good communi communicator. And I don't know that I'd want to face you on a debate stage or anything like that. So I just thought I'd tell you. I appreciate it. As someone who is uh, naturally competitive and has been on the debate stage many times before, uh, that means a lot to me. Thank you. Yeah. Tell me about your debate history. Talk a little bit about that. You enjoyed it, right? I do. Um, I don't know if you're familiar. Gallup has the strengths quest that you can do. Um, it's one of the many kinds of, you know, personality psychology tests. Um, I have taken it as a requirement for a former job. Um, and one of my top strengths is that I am competitive. And that has been something that has been developing in me since I was a kid. I was the nerd who did speech and debate in high school. Um, that's where my interest in politics really came from in the first place. I remember my first topic was debating mandatory voting and whether I thought that was an ethical thing to have. And I learned the whole pro side of the case and was like, this is I believe this me at 15 years old, like this is something that we have to have. And then the debate requirement was that you then learn the entire negative side so that you could debate both. Mm -hmm. And then it was just like, oh God, I have to try to balance these opinions. Um, but yeah, starting from there, doing speech and debate all through high school and then going into college and doing model United Nations, which ended up lining up perfectly with what I wanted to do later in the day. Um, it was such an amazing experience. I ended up running my college's Model UN team at Mizzou. Uh, we went to our first award-winning season that year. I got to speak from the dais of the UNHQ uh, and deliver a speech on climate change policy, which was very exciting. Uh, one of the more highlights of my personal journey so far. Um, so yeah, debate has been a huge part of my personal life and just the extracurricular things that I do up to now. That's excellent. Tell me something. I've noticed that wherever I've lived, and I've lived in about 10 different states in my career, and something I noticed was that when I was on the East Coast, there could be people who believe one opinion and others who believe another. And sometimes it was Democrat or Republican, that sort of thing. Could be religion, could be anything. And what I noticed was that everybody thought differently, but they respected each other's opinion. 
And in some places where I've lived, I just have a notion sometimes. I don't, I'm not sure if it's happening more today, but that a person has an opinion. And if you don't share that opinion, you're wrong. They're right and you're wrong. I just wondered if you'd speak to that a little bit. What what do you think? Yeah. Um, oh, it's it's a complicated question, right? I mean, I agree with you to some extent. I do think that exists um, for sure. In terms of how I feel about it, I don't necessarily think that there's a right or a wrong with the notion that there are some issues that, you know, they have you have to stand by them as your core beliefs. And like if you disagree with someone, it no longer becomes a matter of opinion. It becomes a matter of like existential. Can we continue this conversation um, now where I'm from, especially in rural Missouri? And I think in a lot of rural places or just the Midwest in general, um, there is unfortunately a very partisan divide that exists that's very bitter and a lot of times people on either side, if they find out that you vote for the other party or you have some kind of conflicting belief on most issues, uh, then they will take that hardline stance. And I think that can be really frustrating because there are a lot of topics from in political terms, from defense to economics, um, all of those kinds of things, education, where we can have productive conversations. We can try to find middle ground. Um, the unfortunate reality, I think, is that especially when it comes to partisan politics, the two political parties have moved so far into making their voting identity around social issues that we now face a reality where voting for one party means you're negating the values of people. So like for myself as a gay man, I now have to confront the fact that someone who lives in Florida who votes for the Republican party or for the current governor there is choosing to vote for the person who pushed the bill that says it's wrong to talk about me in schools. It's wrong to talk about me in front of children. And I think there's a difference when it comes between telling a person like, I disagree with your stance on economics. I disagree with your stance on taxation. And I disagree with your opinion about whether or not you're valid to exist. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a nuanced question, but yeah, there's, there's a fine line that you have to walk between when it's okay to negate someone's opinion to say that they're wrong versus when those kinds of conversations don't need to be happening. Very true. You address that very well. Is, is there anything else that you would like to say? This could easily be a three-part series here, but we do have to close it out. I, I just want to make sure I didn't neglect anything that you might want to talk about? Anything you want to mention to especially our young viewers? You know, in general, I think we've hit on a lot of the points that I was hoping to. Um, I think the main thing would just be um, kind of going back a little bit to the disruptions conversation and also embracing change. I mean, I am only 23, right? I have a long time to go. But as I was thinking about doing this podcast and I was thinking about the idea of what it looks like to live in a world that's so disruptive, I realized that every single year of my life since starting college, so from 2017 to now, uh, there has been something really big in my life, whether it's internal and for a good reason, um, like finding out that I have a passion for the Russian world, um, or it's for a negative reason like the pandemic or the special military operation, the war going on in Ukraine. Um, 
something has changed my entire life plan that I thought I had set out. Um, and that became really debilitating. And I know so many people my age who really struggle with that reality because our generation came into college and started the adult world right at the time when we were dealing with these kinds of crises. We were dealing with a presidency that we weren't sure how that was going to shape our rights, that we've become concerned with nationalism as it comes around the world, and again in the US, um, and then the pandemic. And there's just been so many changes in our life that can be really stressful um, and put us down because we thought we had all of these big plans, these big ideas, and now it doesn't feel as possible. But I also thought, as I was going through each of those disruptions, about the good things that have come out of it. And I realized that with every disruption, something positive has come out. So like the pandemic, I had, before the pandemic started, a DC Capitol Hill summer internship lined up for the summer of 2020. That didn't happen, of course, that was canceled. I ended up for my summer working back in food service, which was not where I saw myself going back to. But then in the fall, I landed a virtual foreign service internship as a news monitor with the State Department. That is an opportunity I never saw myself doing. Um, and yet it worked out perfectly. And it was a huge instigator in realizing that this is really something that I want to do, that it's not just an academic interest, but that this is a career opportunity for me. Um, there's been opportunities like that all over. I wouldn't be in DC right now with a great professional job working on democracy building in Eurasia and an exciting new master's program at a leading U.S. school. If it wasn't for the fact that I had to leave Russia at a moment's notice, that that crisis put me in a position where I had to leave my old university. So, you know, I think the biggest thing for my generation as a takeaway right now in life is, yes, things are disruptive and it feels really hard to have a plan. And it can feel disheartening at times, but know that at the same time that when that door closes, there's always going to be a new one that opens and there's always going to be a new path forward for you. That is perfect. I don't want to touch anything after that because you you said it beautifully. Thank you, Dan. Uh, Thank you. You really enlightened us. I appreciate it so much, all your wisdom. And it's been a great discussion. Um, you're a real peak performer. So wish you lots of luck. And uh, we appreciate you being here with us today. And we thank you, our viewers, too. Pick up your show notes from this podcast. Be a lot of show notes offered below. And Dustin, another great level up. I think it's time to wrap it up. Cheers. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. You're welcome. If you feel like this information was valuable to you, Dan would love it if you'd click the like button and subscribe to the channel. If you have any questions or thoughts about today's episode, please leave a comment. Also, if you're a first-time subscriber, be sure to ring that bell to be notified about future episodes. To learn more about what Impact's training and development can do for you and your business, visit impactbydan.com, where you can find more information about executive coaching, corporate training, keynote speaking, and much more. Thanks so much for watching.